Matthew 24, starting with verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Father, I ask for your help now as we unfold this text and as we seek to have a passion for your supremacy in all things, for the joy of all peoples. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come in this room right now and let there be a sacred anointing on the ministry of the word and the hearing of the word. I ask that hearts would be made supple and docile and humble before the word and that we would be changed beholding the glory of the Lord and that the change would be for the sake of the nations that are yet unreached with no indigenous evangelizing Christian movement in their culture. I pray that there would be a deep unease in any that are too comfortable with a peacetime mentality when we live in wartime and the stakes are as high as eternity. Grant, I pray that none would be cavalier in the way they listen. Come and give us earnestness in this moment. And make of us people who don't live light, but weighty lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to bear witness this morning to the grace of God in my life to give me a passion for world missions, world evangelization. God put me into a family whose father was Bill Piper, an evangelist who prayed every night that he was home for missions and missionaries in my presence. And who at age 78 is managing Bible correspondence courses among 40 nations. Then he sent me to a college with the heritage of alumni like Jim Elliott and Billy Graham. 
Then he sent me to a seminary who at that time was founding the first graduate level school of world missions. Then he sent me overseas to do my graduate work in another culture and with another language. Then he sent me to teach at Bethel College and get acquainted with and become a part of the Baptist General Conference with its world mission vision. Then in 1980, he sent me to Bethlehem with its 100-year history of sending out the likes of Ola Hansen to the unreached people of Burma called the Kachin. Then in 1983, he opened my eyes during a missions conference like this one to the connection between Christian hedonism and world evangelization. And in 1993, ten years later, he commissioned me through the elders to go away and to put what I had learned in the last ten years while the missions budget grew from $91,000 to $434,000, and today is at $522,000, to put that in a book which is called Let the Nations Be Glad from Psalm 67, verse 4. Let the nations be glad. And if you are a member of this church and count this church your home, please read this book so that you will know why we are aflame for that mission statement on the wall up there. To spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. That last quarter banner up there for the joy of all peoples is what this conference is about. It's what this book is about. It's what my life is about. It's what this church is about. And if you're newer, you need to get on board. And so I plead with you to be a part of what's happening this week, to get this book and read it and to try to get up to speed with what God's been doing in our lives. And he's still doing. I plan to preach another one of these messages in Ten years and document the rest of the story up till that time. And I expect some awesome things to happen in my life. I never cease to thank God for where I was born and where I got educated and where I was called to be a pastor because my life has been dramatically changed by every step in my life. And I did not design any of them. If you knew the means by which I made choices like there are palm trees in Pasadena. That's where they should go to seminary. No snow. If you knew the criteria I used to make decisions in my life, you would believe in the sovereignty of God. <laughs> and the same thing will be true in the next ten years and in your life as well. And so from time to time, we have to, as a church... With this many people in one service, and there'll be another group like this in the next service who don't have a clue where we've been for the last 17 years together, and yet are contemplating either being here among this group, or you're here and you mean to be here. You need to have me rehearse, well, okay, what are the truths? What has happened? What have you learned that makes this thing burn like it seems to burn in so many at this church called world evangelization? What has ignited this? What are your radical values? And so I'm going to rehearse it this morning. This is kind of like a summary message. The text that was read culminating in verse 14 of Matthew 24 is a text from which I suppose I could take maybe four of my seven points this morning and hang them there. And the others would be kind of spin off implications 
This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. And then as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. If these values that I'm going to talk about now took root in your life, in all of our lives here in this church, I do believe that we would so pray, fast, teach, preach, speak, witness, go, send, that the day of God would be hastened, as it says in 2 Peter 3.12. All right? Seven discoveries that we have made as a church. Number one, we have discovered that God is passionately committed to his fame. God's ultimate goal is that his name should be known and praised and enjoyed among all the peoples. The text says, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. Gospel of the kingdom. That means the good news, gospel means good news. The good news is about a king who has come, has manifested his triumph, his kingly triumph over death, sin, hell, Satan, guilt, and all the enemies of the world, King Jesus is triumphant. So when you read in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news, who preach good tidings of happiness, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What it means is the gospel of the kingdom is our God is king. That's the gospel. And he exerted his kingly power to save us and to destroy death and destroy Satan and to overcome guilt and sin so that we might be the most free, happy, radical martyrs the world has ever known for the cause of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the kingdom. And it will be preached. And the reason it will be preached is because God's aim is that he be known, admired, loved, cherished, honored, trusted, sung, praised, obeyed, followed, glorified, magnified among all the peoples of the world. He has a passion for his fame among the nations. He does not like being unknown or ignored, or misunderstood, or disbelieved. He doesn't like that. And therefore, he mobilizes those who've seen the glory to spread the glory. That's what missions is about. And that's the first and main thing that we've discovered. And you see it all over the Bible. Romans 9, 17, we read on Wednesday night. He raised Pharaoh up so that God's name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Isaiah 12, 4 is the central command of missions. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that his name is exalted. Find a people group where you look around and his name is not being exalted and walk into that people group and say, Jesus, be exalted among you. See what happens. The first question they'll ask is, who's Jesus? 
Man missions happened. Number two. We discovered that God's purpose to be known and praised and enjoyed among the nations cannot fail. His purpose to be known and praised and enjoyed among the nations cannot fail. The text again, verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom Underline, shall be. I love Charles Spurgeon's sermon, The Shells and the Wills of God. He reveled in the shells and the wills of God. I can't say this. I am a man. I don't have a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. I can guess. I do not know what's happening tomorrow. God knows what's happening tomorrow. And so God can speak in the future tense perfectly. And he does. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. It's going to happen. And the ground of that kind of certainty is the sovereignty of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, it's going to happen. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. And therefore, he will take this promise that he made and heaven and earth may pass away. But my words, he says, my words will never pass away. Not one jot, one tittle will fall from the word of Jesus until all is accomplished, including verse 14. God's counsel will stand, as we said in the fighter verse a few weeks ago. And he will accomplish all his purpose. Which means a person or a church can either get on board and be honored by participating in the triumph or get off board to incalculable loss. Whether we get on or off has nothing to do with the triumph. He will win whether you're on or off. So you don't make it happen. And he's not wringing his hands. Oh, I wonder if Bethlehem will help me get it done. He is wondering and he is making happen, I believe this morning, that Bethlehem get on board and be a part of the finishing of this great purpose. It's going to happen. That's number two. Number three, we discovered that the missionary task is focused on reaching unreached peoples, not just people. See the S at the end of peoples up there? It's an odd word. I know we don't use it real often, but there it is. Last letter on the banner. S. Peoples. We learned... That the missionary mandate of the church does not mainly have to do with amassing individual conversions alone. It has mainly to do with amassing individual conversions among all the peoples of the world. And where any peoples are yet reached or unreached, missionaries are called to go there. And it doesn't matter whether, say, some country is incredibly fruitful and millions are coming to Christ in, say, the Philippines. If there are 
hard to reach unreached people groups in Oman, you go there. Because God says the peoples. Now you can see this in today's text as well. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And what we learned, I didn't know this growing up. Nobody ever taught me this. My dear dad never taught me this. That that doesn't mean Germany, Uganda, Argentina, China, America. It doesn't mean political, geographic states. They didn't even exist. It means ethno-linguistic. Ethnic, linguistic groupings like Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Navajo, Cherokee, Fulani, Kurd, Berber. No countries attached. This is not a country thing. I grew up thinking it's a country thing. And then I learned we're already in all the countries. There are Christians in every country. So the job's done. Right? Wrong. There are people groups, hundreds, some would say thousands, depending on how you define them, where there is no indigenous evangelizing Christian movement. Which is why anybody that says today, the day of missionaries is over, let's all come home and let's let them evangelize their own, has absolutely got his head in the sand. Because there aren't any own doing evangelism. Don't let anybody hoodwink you on this saying, let's just send money and stay home. Send money to whom? Please tell me among the thousands of people groups that have no Christians to send the money to. And if you say, oh, well, their next door neighbor, fooey, the next door neighbors hate each other. Did you know that about four weeks ago in New Mexico, five missionaries from a tribe in northern Indonesia who've been Christian for 30 years showed up to the Navajo tribe. And the shaman among the Navajo Indians in New Mexico wept. They hate white people. We live next door. Send the money to us, Indonesia. We'll evangelize them. Baloney. When was the last time you ever saw an evangelist successful among the Navajo? Or the Ojibwe, for that matter. Proximity is meaningless. Sometimes. So these five missionaries from Indonesia show up in New Mexico and the tears flow. You care that much? You love us that much? Now, I don't know what's going to happen, but that's the kind of thing that God is doing. Peoples, peoples, which is why Revelation 5, 9 has become as important as Matthew 28, 19. Worthy art thou... To take the scroll and open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood did ransom men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's what we mean by peoples. Tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They're all going to be there. And many of them are yet unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's number three.
Number four. We discovered that the scarcity of Paul type missionaries has been obscured by the quantity of Timothy type missionaries. Now, I know that's a meaningless sentence for many of you, but we'll say it and then explain it. We discovered that the scarcity of Paul type missionaries has been obscured by the quantity of Timothy type missionaries. Here's what I mean. When you read the Bible, New Testament, you discover that there were two types of missions or missionaries, Timothy type and Paul type. Now, Timothy type, I just simply say, is uh, the type that Timothy represents. Namely, Paul finds this young man in Lystra and wins him to Christ. He's a God-fearer, probably. Hears the gospel, believes And Paul says to his mother and his grandmother, father's a pagan, may have dropped out of the picture, I want your son. What do you want him for? I want to take him with me on my journeys. He's, he's, I can tell this is the kind of person I want with me. I'm going to train him and I'm going to use him and he may never come home. And for all we know, he never did go home. So he takes him on his missionary journey and he lands in Ephesus. Oh, that's what I don't I didn't measure it. But from Lystra over in uh, eastern Turkey and and uh, to Ephesus, a few hundred miles, whatever. And he's in another culture in a big city. And Paul plants him there and and leaves him there. And the reason we know he leaves him there is because he writes first and second Timothy to him. And he's the leader in Ephesus. So, you have a man who left home, joined a missionary band, crossed a culture, and plopped himself in a place where there was a church. And there are elders at Ephesus. We know that from Acts 20. There's outreach going on from Ephesus to the surrounding towns. We know that from Acts 19. And Paul says, stay there. He doesn't say, go, go to Spain. I'm going to Spain. You stay there. That's Timothy-type missions. We got thousands of them all over the world doing ministry outside their own homeland where the church already exists. I call it Timothy type missions. Church has been in Cameroon, for example, for 150 years. Paul type missionaries are people like Paul who can't stay anywhere very long after the church gets planted. And he says, I make it my ambition. This is Romans 15, 17. I make it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. And so we lose Paul on the screen of history heading for Spain. Some think he got there. Some don't think he got there. He was killed by Nero in the late 60s, and he's gone. But he said to Rome, I am coming to you that you might bid me farewell on my way to Spain. That's a frontier missionary. Now, what shocked me in 1981, 2, 3, as the fact landed on me with Ralph Winter's help, is that... 
90% of the missionaries from North America are Timothy-type missionaries and 10% are Paul-type missionaries. Misleading us to think that we're doing something great. When in fact we have so much more to do among the unreached peoples. And so I really believe from those days to this day that my calling as a pastor and the only way I can survive in this city saturated with radio stations that are Christian and saturated with bookstores that are Christian and saturated with 12 or 1300 evangelical churches, not to mention mainline and Catholic churches that I could stay here, stay here with all the truth that is in this head and this heart, stay here. The only way I could stay here is if my calling and this book and others like it are fruitful in getting you out of here. And that's why I put in the preface of this book, my life hangs on your going, many of you. So this fact that there are not enough Paul-type missionaries in the world drives me, the way I talk about this, and I have no apologies for making pleas for people to lay down their life to become Paul-type missionaries. If I bury every one of my sons in coffins right there in ten years, I will praise God if they died in the cause. And I think Talitha will probably outlive me to that point. But if in some marvelous way I live to be 90 and she joins them in the coffin for the cause, I will die a happy father. And I want to breed that kind of parents. Nothing is more glorious than to give our lives to become Paul-type missionaries in the hardest places of the world. Number five, we discovered that domestic ministries are the goal of frontier missions. And frontier missions is the establishment of domestic ministries. Now, let me explain. Back in 83, emotions were raw as God moved. All you guys ever talk about is world missions. Us people who aren't called feel like second-class citizens around here. It was so hot in those days. People began to feel guilty, bad, put upon if they were senders instead of goers. And the Lord showed us some stunning things. Namely, that domestic ministries is the goal of frontier missions. Let me explain. What do I mean by domestic ministries? I mean, in our domestic situation, being aflame with the justice and the mercy of Jesus Christ for the sake of evangelism, poverty, medical care, unemployment, hunger, abortion, unwed mothers, Runaway kids, pornography, family disintegration, child abuse, divorce, hygiene, 
education at all levels, drug abuse, alcoholism, environmental concerns, crime, prison reform, moral abuses in the media, business and politics. In other words, salt and light at every level of this society and culture in which we live. We are called to be there and do that and burn for that. And those are the kind of people that were getting head up about world missions because they were called to do that here. And they were hearing me say, come on, there are unreached peoples. And then it landed on us. Now listen. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all those unreached peoples. To what end? So that those domestic ministries can happen there. And if you love environmental concerns, how about the environment in Uzbekistan? How about the Aral Sea? How about hunger? How about refugees? They're all over the place here, but they're doing pretty good compared to Rwanda and Somalia. If you love ministering to AIDS victims, how about Uganda? Do you have any idea, any idea the decimation In other words, this is not an either or thing to do those things here. And I pray we will do more. We're looking for a full-time urban pastor right now who I pray will take that paragraph right there and burn when he reads it and say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm here for the long haul. And we're going to do this so well, so powerfully, so deep, that those who get involved in it, when they read about Uganda, leave. And I'll recruit some more. And domestic ministries will become the breeding ground of frontier missionaries. And frontier missionaries will become the exporters of culturally, sensitively transformed Domestic ministries in other cultures. And we will come back and we will go back and forth and there will be a non-condemning partnership among these laborers. That's what we discovered with regard to domestic and frontier missions. Number six. Oh, I see a note in my margin here. I don't want to miss this. A new development um, in in the neighborhood, as you know, is that frontier missions and domestic ministries are moving like this because of people that are coming to us, right? And I prayed downstairs, and I when I saw this coming a few days ago, I marveled. This is the praying through the window sheet. I hope some of you are doing this, praying for the people groups of the 1040 window. Is it an accident or is it a God-ordained providence and signal and call on this church, church 
that for day 26 of October, that's today, the number one people listed are Somali. You can't walk out of this church without seeing a Somali person. You can't go from here to the SA without seeing them. Is that a call? The women are already at it, I believe. A tea to meet Somali women across the street. Help them learn English. Some skills for how to get along in this culture. And God willing to show them the greatest thing in the world. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. Men, how can we do it with the men? These are Muslims. Veils and the tinnies. Looks sort of funny. That's, that's, that's the paradox that they're living in right now. And there's a way. The men and the women, they don't. So we gotta do this separately. There's no couples action with Muslim Somalis. It's men to men and women to women. God's calling us. Pray about that, men and women. Number six. We have come to see that God ordains suffering as the price and the means of finishing the Great Commission. It is no fluke that in this book, 1993, and in Future Grace, 1995, and in the 10th anniversary new edition of Desiring God, 1996, all have new chapters on suffering. That's no accident. It's because of what I have been learning from history and from the Bible. Namely, that not only, according to what Sam read in the text, not only are we promised that the price and consequence of obedience in world evangelization will be suffering and martyrdom. We are promised that. But we are taught, this is the new thing I'm learning, we are taught that it is ordained as God's means of reaching the unreached. See this book? This just was published this year. 500 pages, Suffering, Martyrdom, and Rewards in Heaven by Joseph Tan. Joseph Tan, educated at Oxford in England, then against the advice of everybody, 1980 or late, late, late 70s, returns to Romania, into the communist scene, begins to preach and teach at the risk of his life and his family's life, and then, instead of being killed, was exiled in 1981, moved to Wheaton, Illinois, founded the Romanian Missionary Society, and now is back in Romania because it's open, and they will let him back. And he just finished this, this is his doctoral dissertation at the University of Amsterdam, this book costs $70. Isn't that ridiculous? Close parenthesis, sorry. It's not his fault. Ooh, nobody's going to buy this book. And everybody ought to have it. So I'll just tell you what's in it. You can put it in a sentence. I'll read it to you. I'll read you the sentence. If I can find it. Page 423. Suffering and martyrdom have to be seen as part of God's plan. They are his instruments by which he achieves his purposes in history and by which he will accomplish his final purpose 
with man. Now, I wish I could take an hour to unfold why I think that is, but I just send you to those chapters on suffering and leave it at that and draw things to a close here. So that was number six. There's one more. Namely, that suffering and martyrdom are the price and the means by which we will reach Muslim peoples, Hindu peoples, Buddhist peoples in the hard so-called creative access or closed countries of the world. Bank on it. It's going to happen. Everywhere I go and speak to people on missions, I say, I do believe that in a room like this, there are martyrs. And I believe there are some in this room right now. I got a... I wrote Oscar the other day, Oscar Huerta, in in uh, Uzbekistan. And he asked me how Ben was doing. I love Oscar because eight or ten hundred reasons. But... Um, one of them was because he took my bin to Hennepin Avenue to witness to skinheads when he lived in my basement. And uh, Ben left home not really excited about skinheads anymore. And when I answered him, I said, I think Ben is just biding his time until he can find a good place to be a martyr. That's the way he's always been. Number seven. We have discovered that God is most glorified in us when we are so satisfied in him that we accept suffering and death for his sake to extend our joy to the unreached peoples. We have discovered that God is most glorified in us when we are so satisfied in him that we are willing to bear joyfully the price of suffering to extend our satisfaction to those who have no access to it in the gospel. When people begin to say this slight momentary affliction is working for me an eternal weight of glory. When people begin to say I count the sufferings of this world not to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. When people begin to say, I count everything as loss for the sake of the surpassing value of Christ Jesus, my Lord. When people begin to express their satisfaction in God like that, missions is in the offing. That's what we've learned. So if you love to sing the songs that we've been singing recently about God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Remember, it comes to fulfillment best when our satisfaction not only survives, but thrives in suffering. Then we know whether what we're rejoicing in is God or happy tunes and good families, and health in our bodies, and 911 available, and a good job, and everything going right. Let's pray.
Father, as we close now and once more say our heart's desire, our heart, our desire is to see the nation's worship. Once more we say we mean it. And we, in as far as it lies within us, dedicate ourselves either to be goers or senders with a radical edge to our lives because of what we've seen of the glory of God and the beauty of Christ and the preciousness of the gospel and the need of the nations. Let's stand and sing that together. Now unto the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.